pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and reimagine their world anew. This one is no different. It's a portal, a gateway between one world and the next, a chance to think differently, and that a return to normalcy could be the worst possible thing we could do. That's Ellen Kelsey, President and CEO of Business Group on Health. Ellen's here to predict that digital adoption really is healthcare's tipping point and where big employer change may come from next. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. For more information, check out our online healthcare publication called Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com and follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Ashley Smith, a health and life sciences partner with Oliver Wyman in San Francisco, and I'm here with Ellen Kelsey, the CEO of the business group on health. Um, I met Ellen a few years ago when we were uh, asked to participate in one of her value-based care committees, and that's a topic that Oliver Wyman has been deeply involved in for some time, and we've gotten to know each other over the years and gotten to be a part of each other's conferences and, and write articles together, and so I'm really excited to talk with her today about some of the topics that we're seeing and the big changes that we're seeing in healthcare in light of covid and how we think that compares to what we thought would happen in the industry only, you know, six months to a year ago. So, Ellen, I hope you want to say a few words about yourself and your organization, then we can dive into the questions. Sure. And thank you so much for having me, Ashley. As, as you said, we've been colleagues and collaborating for a few years now and um, really appreciate the partnership and learn so much every time I talk to you and your colleagues at Oliver Wyman and I'm delighted to be with you today on, on this podcast conversation. A little bit about who we are as an organization. The Business Group on Health is a nonprofit membership-based organization. We represent primarily the interests of large employers on a variety of health and well-being related matters. As a membership-based organization, we do have over 440 member companies, mostly predominantly those large self-funded employers. Um, we have 74 of the Fortune 100 and certainly many of the Fortune 500 as well. So all of the entities that many of your listeners would be familiar with who operate in every state here in the U.S. as well as in over 200 countries around the globe. But in addition to those employers, we also have among our membership Everybody else is essentially partnering and in service to those employers and offering their health and well-being programs. So that is entities such as health plans, it is health systems, it's provider groups, it's uh, PBMs, pharma manufacturers, it's lab companies, testing companies, certainly consultants, as well as point solutions and any number of innovators and data companies. So a very broad array of stakeholders within our membership, but really all working in collaboration to identify and advance on the common pain points and challenges that exist within the health and well-being programs in employer-sponsored plans to date, and generally speaking, across the industry. We're going to take your really robust membership mix and try to weave it into the conversation today. We start with what's changing in healthcare, how the needs of employers are changing with that, and then what some of the stakeholder groups that you just mentioned really need to be thinking about now in order to meet those needs um, now and, and into what is um, increasingly a bit of an uncertain future. So I might start with a, a topic that, that I know we've spoken about 
many times, but real leaps and changes in healthcare and the, the consumption behavior of employees and how employers buy has been really challenging to get large scale global change. You know, there are pockets of innovation and people who push the envelope more than others. But at your Business Health Agenda Conference in 2019, we talked a lot about potential future scenarios for the next 10 years and what would be the tipping point that would finally cause significant change in the industry. We talked about regulatory scenarios, consumer-driven consumption scenarios, um, technology and innovation. I don't think any of us looked for a tipping point that was called COVID <laughs> at the time, um, but it certainly accelerated change in a lot of ways, behaviors around telehealth, consumer preferences, and healthcare utilization. And so are we, are we finally there? Are we now, whether we wanted to be or not, in a situation where there's going to be actual lasting change in healthcare? Yeah, certainly you know, a year ago when you were at our conference and delivering that keynote and talking about these different scenarios, you're right, we never in a million years contemplated a pandemic. And, you know, while we've certainly seen very steady and incremental change for years within the industry, we, we haven't yet experienced that leapfrog or that lightning rod moment per se. You know, in order to do that, we, we really need all stakeholders aligned with oars in the water, rowing in the same direction and doing so steadily and consistently for a significant period of time. And it couldn't have ever been just a moment in time or, or even just one pivotal situation historically. But now we have upon us an event, a pivotal moment in time that perhaps very well could be the catalyst for sustained change. All we needed was really that spark start a fire. And maybe we do have within this pandemic that spark in a fire building. We are at a moment due in large part to the pandemic that really shouldn't be squandered. You know, we all talk about silver linings um, in unfortunate situations and the silver lining this, in this pandemic. And there are many silver linings emanating and coming from this pandemic. Um, but we all knew pre-pandemic that the status quo wasn't sustainable. And we were already seeing significant cracks in that foundation and glimpses of promise before the pandemic. You know, we saw glimpses of promise in all of those scenarios you just mentioned. And I think many of those scenarios have been underscored and exacerbated uh, because of the pandemic. So it's um, the pandemic that's really lit the fire under some, some embers that were glowing. We have an opportunity. And it seems like your constituents, the major constituents, the employers, believe that this is a, an opportunity to, to try to make some change. The change that was contemplated a year ago was very much along the lines of innovator-led product launches, new digital products, consumers voting with their dollars to buy experience and lower-cost products versus broad access. And that would decrease the cost of care by, by uh, an inordinate amount. Some of those endpoints or, or tipping points feel like they're still going to happen. However, what we've seen is only a handful of digital product launches, up, some uptake, but, but not a ton yet. And depending on what employer segment you're talking to, looking forward, sometimes not having that digital telehealth-focused product or experience be the first thing that's top of mind to control costs. It, it very much when we talk to the small end, small group and mid-market, people are marching through the benefit cost levers and the network levers and then getting to, to digital and innovation. From your perspective, is the thing that locks in the change going to be driven from kind of the small end of the market or the large end of the market 
previously larger jumbo employers had led some of that innovation. What do you think is going to happen? I think it's going to be a combination. You know, I certainly sit here representing the largest employers out there around the globe, and I and I see the change that they are driving and have been driving for years now. I certainly see the robustness and eagerness that they have attacked um, change just in the past few months related to their pandemic response. But I also think there are other employers who may be smaller um, or mid-sized who are just as innovative, just as progressive, just as eager for change. So it's really hard to draw generalizations. Uh, you know, certainly we have survey data, many other organizations have survey data, and, and we can speak in generalities about what different market segments do. You know, and I can speak certainly from a large employer perspective that, you know, among our members, but on balance overall, large employers generally tend to be the ones that are much more active and activist and are really much more demanding of their partners and, and less likely to roll over and just accept the market dynamics. You had mentioned, you know, pulling levers. And for many employers of any size, they've pulled all the levers that they can pull. There's really not much more tweaking you can do with plan design change. There's very little you can do, and certainly in today's economic environment, to do around contribution and cost share strategies. So those levers have essentially been depleted, and they're really, quite honestly, just band-aids on the bigger problem. And the underlying problem is the delivery system and the effectiveness of the delivery system and how do we have a delivery system that drives better quality outcomes experience and at a lower cost for anybody and everybody, regardless of the size of the employer that they work for. So our members have been on the leading edge of doing a lot to drive and pursue underlying delivery system reform. And that could be in any number of ways. Many have pursued value-based arrangements, whether that be through uh, accountable care organizations, either directly uh, or in partnership with their health plans. Many others have pursued centers of excellence and high-performance network strategies. Um, more recently, we have a number who are pursuing direct primary care relationships. They are certainly among those who are eager to pilot with startups and pursue newer innovations. So I think that they already have been, and even more so now, because of the issues that predated the pandemic, but again, as I said, were really underscored in this pandemic environment, are, are really accelerating and doubling down their efforts there. And I, I would say one of them, quality as well, because the pandemic, as we all know, has created economic hardships on many people, generally speaking, in society and in many industries, generally speaking, but also has been hard hitting on the healthcare and uh, health system and provider provider groups as well. And we have seen that those provider groups that have fared better, better and weathered the storm a bit more effectively were those provider groups and entities who had moved towards alternative payment models. Other provider groups who maybe had not and were still operating in a fee-for-service environment are experiencing significant financial hardship and pressure. And may no longer be viable and may need to pursue partnership and, and consolidation with other provider groups. And while on the one hand, that's certainly understandable economically and what they need to do to perhaps remain in business and stay in practice. On the other hand, it's a little concerning because when we've looked at consolidation in the past, at least in our own studies, we have seen that provider consolidation has not necessarily resulted in improved cost quality outcomes and experience. And so 
employers are keeping a very watchful eye on what might happen in the provider consolidation space and want to make sure that it does not result in a backsliding and a worsening of those um, very important measures uh, within the delivery system and outcomes that um, we certainly are all striving for from a Right. Even, even if it's not consolidation, what we've seen already um, in working with our payer clients is the providers coming back to the table and saying, yeah, yeah, we've been taking, asking for 6% increases for, for years now, um, and they're coming to the table now in contracting negotiations at 10 to 15%. Um, yeah. Partly probably because of the dynamic that you were just saying, but because of the, the economic hardship that, that COVID has wrought on a system that, that is inefficient to begin with. Yeah. And so they're sort of asking somebody to make up that gap so they can continue somewhat uh, th that inefficiency and cover the cost there. In the past, that's found its way back in the employer's lap, certainly in the, the small and mid-market where they've had outsized increases um, in annual costs compared to much larger employers, um, almost to the point where, you know, it's like 50% of employers under 500 lives had a 6% or higher annual increase in the last few years versus almost that much had under 5% or nothing from a large employer standpoint. So it's really, the experience is very different for the different employer types. And we talked about the different behaviors and who could lead the change. Are, are employers going to keep standing for that? And do the smaller ones have any agency to, to make changes? Well, I don't think, certainly upmarket, the large employers are not going to stand for it. As I said, I don't think they're going to roll over and take it. The balloon has been squeezed. There, there is no appetite for continued cost shifting or continued escalation in pricing that is unwarranted. I think from a, a mid-sized and small employer perspective, they too are financially strapped. Many of these entities and, and employers are themselves trying to remain viable and trying to keep a workforce employed and trying to continue to provide and procure health and benefit coverage for that workforce. So they too have finite resources. And this may be the agent that finally, you know, creates a little bit more of a drumbeat within um, some of the smaller employer groups to really lean much more heavily and aggressively on their partners to not take it anymore. So whether that's their consulting partner, their health plan partner, and other partners to, to not just take those price increases. And so to pursue more aggressively um, alternative strategies within their own negotiations with those partners. So what do we, what do we think? Let's, let's put maybe the large employer hat back on. And you mentioned aggressive strategies. In your mind, how are those going to manifest over the next year or two? in response to, to the challenges and the pressures that, that we've just been talking about? Are they going to manifest in some of the same ways that we've seen? Like you said, there's value-based innovation. There's trying to do different delivery system innovation and partnerships. There are digital products and different product constructs. Uh, what are the large employers going to do in the next couple of years in response to this? Every year we kind of keep an eye on what we call our trends to watch for the coming year. And all of the trends that we were tracking as we were entering into 2020 have been nothing but underscored again exponentially by the pandemic. They haven't necessarily been upended. They haven't been replaced by newer strategies. So when I mentioned earlier doubling down, the employers that we represent in large part are staying focused on 
the strategies that they were already focused on, but in a very nuanced and perhaps a hyper-aggressive way because of the pandemic. And so those are all the things that you just mentioned. It is the movement towards value and quality. The movement towards value and quality that I just referenced, um, certainly innovation and driving uh, aggressive innovation, consumer-friendly integration, uh, innovation, but in a way that is heavily integrated, and, and I'll expand on that in a minute as well. Looking at primary care and primary care, again, I had mentioned that some of our employers had pursued direct primary care arrangements, but as we see through this pandemic, primary care is nuanced because many, many have deferred care. They're not going in for their annual screenings. Many uh, the chronic disease burden in the country and, and those that have succumbed or fallen ill more easily to the virus are those who have chronic disease. And so prevention and maintenance of those conditions is important. And then also um, social determinants of health and how the pandemic has disproportionately impacted certain communities differently than others. And so really having tight coordination across care delivery for all of those different reasons starts and needs to be quarterbacked by primary care and primary care that is done in a value-based way. Mental health, we could go hours and hours talking about the mental health crisis in the country before the pandemic that has certainly been really exploded in unbelievable new ways in, in light of the pandemic for either people who had pre-existing um, mental and behavioral health needs and certainly many who did not, but now just about every single one of us probably has some point felt a sense of anxiety, stress, and isolation because of the pandemic. And so the resulting mental and behavioral health there needs therein and what employers are doing to uh, make advancements in that space as well. I wanted to pick back up on a couple things though on, on quality and the virtual digital space as we think about more care being delivered through uh, virtual modalities. It's been terrific and we've certainly seen um, wide acceptance of that from a consumer and provider perspective. It also though raises the question of how do you measure and assess quality in an increasingly virtual care delivery modality. And so that is a nuanced uh, view of quality that our employers are, are really beginning to ponder and are gonna start asking their partners some tough questions about quality in an increasingly virtual environment. And then on the you know, virtual digital growth that we had seen and had spoken about as one of the scenarios that you spoke about at our conference last year, virtual and growth in virtual is a, a continued area of focus amongst our members. We see 68% of our member companies indicating that they plan to uh, offer additional virtual capabilities in 2021 and 2022 on top of the multitude of virtual solutions that they already had in place, which is on the one hand, great, wonderful to avail those solutions to their workforce. The challenge is that still most of the solutions are not integrated. And so having care and data integrated across all delivery modalities and across all solutions is an issue that continues to plague the industry and is top of mind for employers. So far, it seems like we've deployed virtual around the primary care front end, and that's great. That's a good start, but it doesn't do a ton to actually take cost of care out. It's a nice experience thing. It's a nice access thing. I think what, what we've been focused on and with our clients too is how do you really take then the delivery system transformation on the back end, put that together with the digital front end and make something that is 30 to 40%, 50% lower cost and delivers all the things that you talked about 
around the, the access, the integration, and the experience. That, to me, seems like the endpoint that everyone needs to be shooting for, but we're still just scratching the surface. I agree 100%. You mentioned something about primary care that I'd like to talk about for a second, and employers a bit, and I, I, I've heard this um, from clients as well, being focused on primary care-led innovation, direct contracting. Our survey data says, or at least data that we, we have access to, says you know, 45% of Americans aged 18 to 29 don't have a primary care physician, not necessarily because they can't find one, but because they don't want one. So there's a, a demographic difference in the employee population, potentially, that, that has some interesting corollaries to what you just mentioned around being a very primary care-led strategy. That relationship between a specific physician versus just with primary care in general is something that I think our, our delivery system clients have, have interesting reactions to. Do you feel like the strategies that are being thought about around primary care have to have that physician relationship or is it just primary care in general? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we talk about care teams, right, and different um, clinicians being able to deliver different types of care. And I think the point you've made on the generational deviation is interesting. You know, I, I think they're also the generation that is more apt to um, have less the stigma about seeking out mental health and behavioral health services, right? And so that's mm-hmm. where I get back to the integration. How do you have care teams integrated? How do you have data across providers integrated so that if they are seeking one type of provider, but maybe another type of provider, somehow inter- information is being leveraged more broadly and doesn't just stay in isolation within that one group. So I certainly think, think it is, it's a challenge. There is no silver bullet. It's going to take a multi-pronged approach. It's not just primary care. It's not just mental and behavioral health. It's got to be all of those and many more. Well, and the the added complication that another statistic that's been interesting to watch amidst changing preferences due to COVID is that 39% of urban residents have considered moving to a less densely populated area. Um, If you think about employer provided benefits, the local, sometimes, sometimes local contracting model with the providers, being able to set up that integration because maybe you have relationships with only one or two. If people are spread out much, much more than they were before, even away from employment centers or traditional employment centers, does that complicate in your mind what some of your employers are trying to do around delivery system innovation, finding people to work with if you no longer have a concentration of employees kind of in any one given location? Well, it's a great point that you raise, and I think it really gets to the broader workforce strategy of who do you employ, where do you employ them, and then therefore what services do you offer to them, and how are they delivered? And so, yeah, I I mean, I think that's a hugely important issue. And when you think about, you know, many employers who had on-site clinics at, you know, one or two of their larger locations, well, if not all of their employees are coming back to those locations, what does that mean to the services offered in the clinic or delivery of services who no longer come to the work site uh, to work who used to get those services at a clinic. And we're very real time thinking about flu shots. Many employers in the country offered flu shots in the late summer, early fall to employees at work. They're not going to be able to do that this year. So how do they ensure that their population gets vaccinated for the flu in a year that's going to be most critical for that to happen as we hit the confluence of flu season with pandemic uh, COVID 
cycling through still phase one and, and resurgence of phase two. So really having to think differently about delivery of services in an environment where the work site might not be where the people are anymore, or, or there'll be newer, different types of work sites where most of the people are in the future. Yeah, work site programs, uh, network strategies, delivery strategies, it, it, it makes you wonder about leapfrogging physical provider strategies and even um, physical primary care straight to virtual network that can be highly distributed and serve a highly distributed population with a back end that looks more like dedicated facility centers of excellence uh, across a number of places to, to catch people when they do need to be seen in person because there's always going to be a need for physical care and where somebody needs to go when they when they need that um, high acuity uh, set of services. But is yeah. this the point where people skip over those things like narrow networks, tiered networks, primary, you know, primary care, um, high performance primary care straight to something that looks a little bit more aggressively virtual. Do you think we'll jump that far? Or are we going to move through some of the strategy endpoints that, that people had before? I think it's going to be both. I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's a both and maybe something that we're not even contemplating today. You know, I, I do think certainly the virtual for all that you've just said is here to stay needs all of the different needs and evolution that we're going to see within where people work and the needs and preferences of consumers. I also do think these uh, high performance networks, value-based contracts or delivery within a, in a geography are going to be important. Not every workforce can be done virtually. There are a lot of manufacturing sites that still have thousands of people that go to them, large other, you know, industries that convene people in a location or a number of locations. And so for them, more traditional um, or, or newer modes of, of delivery that we've seen in the past couple of years are still going to remain very relevant. And, and I think we also have to fast forward to a future once Hopefully we do have a vaccine and we are in a, in a prolonged post-pandemic environment where we might snap back to something that's not exactly where we are today or exactly where we came from, but that is moderated and somewhat in between those two worlds. You might not have a fully virtual or a fully present at a worksite population. You'll have something in between. And so having some flexibility in design that contemplates a spectrum of those solutions that does include worksite solutions, does include virtual solutions is going to be really important to allow for flexibility and nimbleness as we, we see what that future world in a couple of years time might look like. You know, if we have employers with, you know, varying degrees of in-person versus virtual workforces, um, the programs have to be that much more tailored to the specific needs even, in the, even than they were before. And that sounds like a great segue into the question around, um, from your perspective, what do they need from payers, from the health insurance companies, and then what do they need from providers, given that that's the world we're going to be in probably for the next couple of years? What advice would you give them? There was a quote I just came up about recently that I thought was really interesting, and it's um, an excerpt from Pandemic is a Portal by Adiranjate Roy. And what she says, I thought was interesting. She says, historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and reimagine their world anew. This one is no different. It's a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. And it offers us a chance to think differently and that um, a return to normalcy could be the worst possible thing we could do. And so I still hear often when I talk to stakeholders across the industry that this is a temporary alternative universe 
and that um, we've seen some silver linings in terms of the movement towards virtual and, and a lot of other, you know, great um, promising things that have really risen to the forefront, but that there's still this desire to kind of snap back to the way things were. And uh, we talked earlier about providers wanting to recoup losses and, you know, raise rates and, and maybe increase unnecessary services to try and recoup some of their losses rather than really truly thinking in novel different ways. And to use a quote, a portal to the future and a portal to something that is different. And so I think it's mindset, quite honestly, that has to change for every single stakeholder. It is employers, it is providers, it is their consultants, it is their health plans, it is innovators who really have to have a mindset shift about the future is not at all gonna look like um, where we came from just a few months ago. And so really thinking um, in novel and different ways about all that we do and aggressively moving in some different directions. And, you know, I think, again, talking about the silver lining, I I think it's amazing when you look at the virtual, how much change you can drive if you let go of constraints that historically drove decision-making. And so the speed to market, the speed of innovation, the willingness to collaborate and partner that we have seen in the past few months has been unbelievably encouraging. And so I just really encourage and hope that we don't lose that spark and that we have that continue to fuel us and drive us as we move into the future. The opportunity is here. There's a portal. There's a bit of an end point through the portal um, that is there for the taking. If people are willing to step up get rid of things maybe that felt sacred in the past, ways of working, ways of thinking, the old tropes, and actually decide to work together differently and imagine a different future. And maybe that's where we want to end, which is if, if you had all the time, infinite resources, stepping through that portal, what two things would you fix about healthcare? Oh, I love this question. And it's hard to just pick one or two things, you know, and I, I would say, obviously, coming from where I come from, representing who I represent, and the convening that we do, it is it is really driving for greater stakeholder collaboration. And collaboration is, is a lot of different things. It's, it's really it's convening, it's talking, it's understanding, it's appreciation, it's alignment, on outcomes. It's having a common vision of what that other side of the portal looks like. And it's really striving in partnership for that common goal. And, you know, recognizing that success along the way may have some challenges for some stakeholder groups. But at the end of the day, we truly want to affect change across the industry and and ultimately to better serve the individuals that we're all working so hard to serve at the end of the day, the patients and consumers, we've got to have greater collaboration across all the stakeholders and have an alignment on the path forward and alignment and a common vision. There's just too much fragmentation, too much disintermediation, too much unhealthy competition. It creates unbelievable frustration, inefficiencies, waste, cost. You know, we trip over ourselves every single day, all trying to do the same thing at the end, but we're not doing it. Our arms linked, talking to each other with a mutual understanding of the different perspectives and how do we, um, you know, align to move forward collectively. So I I do think it, it is about the stakeholder collaboration and alignment. And we have so much that exists already that has the promises and seeds of hope. We just have got to really nurture that and not lose sight of it as we move forward. 
it is it is the major stakeholders um, controlling the major pieces coming together differently and making tough decisions, as you said, to deliver care in in ways that none of their businesses really are set up to do today. The systems have been built up with uh, different incentives in mind, with a, a different operating model, with a different cost structure than is what uh, is needed moving forward, given the cost pressures that we're seeing from COVID, given the change in, un- in employment status, and what's going to actually be feasible going forward is going to look quite different. And so I, I share your hope um, that people come together and might offer that they might just be forced to. Um, there might not be another option at this point that people will have to act differently um, given the environment and, and the way that some things are changing. So thank you for, for the wonderful dialogue. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Appreciate the opportunity. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. If you enjoyed today's show, we invite you to subscribe so you'll be notified whenever a new episode goes live. For more information, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time.